the experience of quarantine been like? How has it been to be together in isolation, in spaces that we hope are safe, and on connections that are virtual? And what can the experiences of quarantine's past tell us now? For this episode, we did something a little different. We put out a call to poets, writers, teachers, observers from all walks of life, and gathered the readings online. We had so many contributors that we decided to release their work in two episodes. So today we present to you the Electro Library Quarantine Edition, Episode 1. Quarantine by D.A. Powell Sounds like a miner's melody or a gemstone set in platinum. A set of blonde and imbricated petals. The perplexing swish of botany's haste. A season originates, then gratifies and ends. Sounds like so many things that happen as beyond, now entering. Solve all arboreal problems that you can. Then what to do when box elder bugs aren't rampant? That's a different set of worries. Play worry in different keys. C is where you always start and end, or so my teacher said, for he was taken by the logic of the dominating swarm, the way it left the punctured globes upon the boughs. We played a spray of ditties in his wake. They sounded like most pickers, those in tempo, those articulating their misfortunes, or at least that's what I imagined going on. Black dots spread, black spots. Pretty soon, the world is one great gall. Then what? Then we hide in the meadow. Oh, how it hums, this meadow. We go to the overpass all the time, Babette, Wilder, and I. We take a thermos of iced tea, park the car, watch the setting sun. Clouds are no deterrent. Clouds intensify the drama, trap and shape the light. Heavy overcasts have little effect. Light bursts through, tracers and smoky arcs. Overcasts enhance the mood. We find little to say to each other. More cars arrive, parking in a line that extends down to the residential zone. People walk up the incline and onto the overpass carrying fruit and nuts, cool drinks, mainly the middle-aged, the elderly, some with webbed beach chairs which they set out on the sidewalk, but younger couples also, arm in arm at the rail, looking west. The sky takes on content, feeling, an exalted narrative life. The bands of color reach so high, seem at times to separate into their constituent parts. There are turreted skies, light storms, softly falling streamers, it is hard to know how we should feel about this. Some people are scared by the sunsets, some determined to be elated, but most of us don't know how to feel, are ready to go either way. Rain is no deterrent. Rain brings on graded displays, wonderful running hues. More cars arrive. People come trudging up the incline. The spirit of these warm evenings is hard to describe. There is anticipation in the air, but it is not expectant midsummer hum of a shirt-sleeve crowd, a sandlot game with coherent precedence, a history of secure response. This waiting is introverted, 
uneven, almost backward and shy, tending towards silence. What else do we feel? Certainly there is awe. It is all awe. It transcends previous categories of awe. But we don't know whether we are watching in wonder or dread. We don't know what we are watching or what it means. We don't know whether it is permanent, a level of experience to which we will gradually adjust into which our uncertainty will eventually be absorbed or just some atmospheric weirdness soon to pass. The collapsible chairs are yanked open. The old people sit. What is there to say? The sunsets linger and so do we. The sky is under a spell, powerful and storied. Now and then a car actually crosses the overpass, moving slowly, deferentially. People keep coming up the incline, some in wheelchairs, twisted by disease, those who attend them bending low to push against the grade. I didn't know how many handicapped and helpless people there were in town until the warm nights brought crowds to the overpass. Cards speed beneath us, coming from the west, from out of the towering light, and we watch them as if for a sign, as if they carry on their painted surfaces some residue of the sunset, a barely detectable luster or film of telltale dust. No one plays a radio or speaks in a voice that is much above a whisper. Something golden falls, a softness delivered to the air. There are people walking dogs, there are kids on bikes, a man with a camera and long lens waiting for his moment. It is not until some time after dark has fallen, the insects screaming in the heat, that we slowly begin to disperse, shyly, politely, car after car, restored to our separate and defensible selves. The men in my leg suits are still in the area, yellow-snouted, gathering their terrible data, aiming their infrared devices at the earth and sky. Dr. Chakravarti wants to talk to me, but I am making it a point to stay away. He is eager to see how my death is progressing. An interesting case, perhaps. He wants to insert me once more in the imaging block where charged particles collide, high winds blow. But I am afraid of the imaging block, afraid of its magnetic fields, its computerized nuclear pulse, afraid of what it knows about me. I am taking no calls. Don DeLillo, White Noise, 1985. Have a seat, stretch out your legs, close your eyes and ears. I shall say nothing for five minutes so you can think about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. See, and this will be more perfect still if you manage not to think in words, but rather create a state of feeling. See if you can halt the whole whirlwind and clear a space for the Fifth Symphony. It is so beautiful. Only thus will you have it through silence. Understand, if I perform it for you, it will fade away, note by note. As soon as the first one is sounded, it will no longer exist. And after the second, 
the harmony will no longer echo, and the beginning will be the prelude to the end, as in all things. If I perform it, you will hear music, and that alone, whereas there is a way to keep it paused and eternal, each note like a statue inside you. Do not perform it. That is what you must do. Do not listen to it, and you shall possess it. Do not love, and you shall have love inside you. Do not smoke your cigarette, and you shall have a lit cigarette inside you. Do not listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and it will never end for you. Thus I redeem myself from casting stones so endlessly. Thus I taught you not to kill. Erect within yourself the monument to unsatisfied desire. And that way things will never die before you yourself die. Because I tell you, sadder still than casting stones is dragging corpses. And if you cannot follow my advice, because life is always more eager than all else, if you cannot follow my advice and all the plans we made to better ourselves, then go suck on some mints. They are so refreshing. Your Idalina. That's some Clarice Lispector's letters to Herman Gardo. And that's from the second letter, from her complete short stories. Don't you want to join us? I was recently asked by an acquaintance when he ran across me alone after midnight in a coffee house that was already almost deserted. No, I don't, I said. Forget everything. Open the windows. Clear the room. The wind blows through it. You see only its emptiness. You search in every corner. And you don't find yourself. Shut yourself off from everyone to the point of insensibility. Make an enemy of everyone. Speak to no one.
and capable of living with people, of speaking, complete immersion in yourself, thinking of yourself, have nothing to say to anyone, never. You do not need to leave your room, remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen, simply wait, be quiet, still and solitary. Beyond a certain point, there is no return. This point has to be reached. Franz Kafka, from the Diaries of Franz Kafka, 1910 to 1923. Throughout Chinese history, there have always been people who prefer to spend their lives in the mountains, getting by on less, sleeping under thatch, wearing old clothes, working the higher slopes, not talking much, writing even less, maybe a few poems, a recipe or two. Out of touch with the times, but not with the seasons, they cultivated roots of the spirit, trading flatland dust for mountain mist. Distant and insignificant, they were the most respected men and women in the world's oldest society. No explanation has ever been offered or demanded for the admiration the Chinese have had for hermits. Hermits were simply there, beyond city walls, in the mountains, lone columns of smoke after a snowfall. As far back as records go, there were always hermits in China. The Chinese say their history goes back 5,000 years, back to the time of Huangdi, the Yellow Emperor. Huangdi was the earliest known leader of the confederation of tribes that established themselves along the Yellow River, and that later called themselves Chinese. But it was from two hermits that Huangdi learned how to conquer his enemies and how to prolong his life. And he reigned for a hundred years, from 2,700 to 2600 BC, around the same time the first pyramids were being built in Egypt. After Huangdi rode off on a dragon to join his fellow immortals, leadership of China's nascent civilization passed through several hands, and around 2300 BC into those of Yao. 2000 years later, Confucius praised Yao as the wisest of men because he passed over members of his own family and chose a hermit as his successor. Huang Fumi's third century work, the Gao Shi Zhuan, or the Records of High-Minded Men, recreates the occasion. Yao asked Su Yu to take over the kingdom, 
but Xu Yi answered, "When the sun or moon is shining, what use is lighting a torch? When the rain is falling, what use is watering crops? You, sir, already rule the kingdom. Were I to replace you, it would be in name only. Name is the guest of reality, and I have no desire to be a guest." Even in a deep forest, the wren uses only one branch for its nest. Even beside a river, the tapir drinks only enough to fill its stomach. Go back, my lord. I have no need for a kingdom. If the cook fails to keep order in his kitchen, the shaman doesn't stop the ritual to take his place. Instead of accepting Yao's offer. Xu Yu washed out his ears in a stream to rid them of any residue such talk might leave behind. But Yao was determined to find a man of virtue and approached another recluse named Shun. Shun accepted Yao's offer, and eventually he too looked for a hermit to succeed him. Again, the Gao Shi Zhuan records the event. Shun tried to give the kingdom to a hermit named Shan Zhuan. But Shan Zhuan protested. In former times, when Yao ruled the realm, people followed him without being told and praised him without being rewarded. The kingdom was at peace, and people were content. They didn't know hate or desire. Now you wear colored robes and confuse their eyes. You mix the five tones and confuse their ears. You play the music of Shao and stupefy their minds. This can only result in disorder, with which I want nothing to do. I have my place in the world. In winter, I wear skins. In summer, I wear hemp. In spring, I plow and plant and have enough to do. In fall, I harvest and gather and have enough to eat. When the sun rises, I get up. When it sets, I rest. I'm free to do what I want in this world, and with that, I'm content. What do I want with a kingdom? I'm afraid you've misjudged me. Shan Zhuan disappeared into the mountains and was never heard from again. From Road to Heaven: Encounters with Chinese Hermits by Bill Porter, 1993. My dear Mrs. Braun, a few words will tell you what sort of a passage we had, and what situation we are in, and few they must be on account of the quarantine, our letters being liable to be opened for the purpose of fumigation at the health office. We have to remain in the vessel ten days and are at present shut in a tier of ships. The sea air has been beneficial to me. About to as great an extent as squally weather and bad accommodations, and provisions has done harm. So I am about as I was. Give my love to Fanny and tell her, if I were well, there is enough in this port of Naples to fill a quire of paper. But it looks like a dream. Every man who can row his boat and walk and talk seems a different being from myself. I do not feel in the world. 
It has been unfortunate for me that one of the passengers is a young lady in a consumption. Her imprudence has vexed me very much. The knowledge of her complaints, the flushings in her face, all her bad symptoms have preyed upon me. They would have done so had I been in good health. Severn now is a very good fellow, but his nerves are too strong to be hurt by other people's illnesses. I remember poor Rice wore me in the same way in the Isle of Wight. I shall feel a load off me when the lady vanishes out of my sight. It is impossible to describe exactly in what state of health I am. At this moment I am suffering from indigestion very much, which makes such stuff of this letter. I would always wish you to think me a little worse than I really am. Not being of sanguine disposition, I am likely to succeed. If I do not recover, your regret will be softened. If I do, your pleasure will be doubled. I dare not fix my mind upon Fanny. I have not dared to think of her. The only comfort I have had that way has been in thinking for hours together of having the knife she gave me put in a silver case the hair in a locket, and the pocketbook in a gold net. Show her this. I dare say no more. Yet you must not believe I am so ill as this letter may look, for if ever there was a person born without the faculty of hoping, I am he. Severn is writing to Haslam, and I have just asked him to request Haslam to send you his account of my health. Oh, what an account I could give you of the Bay of Naples, if I could once more feel myself a citizen of this world. I feel a spirit in my brain would lay it forth pleasantly. Oh, what a misery it is to have an intellect in splints. My love again to Fanny. Tell Toots I wish I could pitch her a basket of grapes. And tell Sam and the fellows, catch here with a line a little fish much like an anchovy, Pull them up fast. Remember me to Mr. and Mrs. Dilk. Mention to Brown that I wrote him a letter at Portsmouth, which I did not send, and am in doubt if he will ever see it. My dear Mrs. Braun, yours sincerely and affectionate, John Keats. Goodbye, Fanny. God bless you. John Keats, letter to Fanny Braun's mother, October 24th, 1820, Naples Harbor, under quarantine. The thief runs swiftly through the night. Here there is included part of a chart on how to identify whales in the open ocean. Northern right whale, likely to throw flukes. searchers. In his diary, Samuel Pepys describes them as old women who enter the plague-stricken houses of London in order to examine corpses and determine cause of death. As I remember it, Pepys observes that the women were chosen for this duty because they were elderly and often indigent, without friends or family, and of no other use to society. They are, he says, ones who would not be mourned. It should perhaps be noted that somewhere in this time of tremendous calamity, Pepys also roundly berates his wife and father for what he sees as their incompetently noisy and lantern-lit carrying out of his urgent order to bury household gold and plate in the elder Pepys's garden at night. 
Tempus habit latitudinum. Time has breadth and extent, size. Here there is included another part of the chart on how to identify whales in the open ocean, occasionally when feeding. According to Peeps, the searchers were made to carry a tall white pole as they moved through the streets, a warning for others to move away and always keep the women at a distance. Although it is impossible to know exact numbers, records indicate that 100,000 people, almost a quarter of the population, died in London's Great Plague of 1665. It is not uncommon to see fright or sorrow listed as the reason for death in the published bills of mortality. Tempus habit latitudinum. Time has breadth and extent, size. Si quis enum performen inspiciet corpus quod statime transiet non percipiatur. For if someone through an aperture will look at an object which instantly passes by, it, the object, will not be perceived. The mandatory warning pole of the searchers is red and specifically three feet long in Daniel Defoe's accounting of the plague year. Defoe records that houses where families were forcibly locked in if the plague appeared were marked by a 12-inch high red cross on the door, and that this cross was accompanied by the words, the Lord have mercy upon us. He also notes that the orders conceived and published by the Lord Mayor and Aldermen of the City of London concerning the infection of the plague, 1665, require searchers to be women, quote, of the best sort as can be gotten this kind, end quote. They are strictly forbidden from entering any public establishments or houses other than those visited by the plague and their own. Here there is included another part of the chart on how to identify whales in the open ocean. Pilot whale, not thrown. Tempus hobbit latitudinum, time has breadth and extent size. Si quis enum performen inspiciet corpus quod statime transiet non percipiatur. For if someone through an aperture will look at an object which instantly passes by, it, the object, will not be perceived. Similatur motus troci, quia velocissimus in tempore multum parvo non attenditur. Similarly, the motion of a top. Because the most rapid in or within a very small time, it is not noticed. Here there is included another part of the chart on how to identify whales in the open ocean. Very likely, especially with calf. White or red, the pole wavers along in my imagining. Must it always be held aloft? Was it ever used to prevent stumbling on a muddy street? Or perhaps to prod a collapsed corpse? Conjure up that missing legislative body, a house of searchers. And slowly, suddenly, there is a rising rumble that swells into thunderous din poles upon poles, pounding parliamentary floor as the women finally signal their displeasure. Tempus habit latitudinum. Time has breadth and extent, size. Sequis enum performen inspiciet corpus quod statime transiet non percipiatur. For if someone through an aperture will look at an object which instantly passes by, it, the object, will not be perceived. Similatur motus troci in tempore multum parvo non attenditur. Similarly, the motion of a top. 
because the most rapid in or within a very small time, it is not noticed. Similatur in motis akidit multum parvo motu. Similarly, it happens in motions with very little movement. Here there is included in its entirety the chart on how to identify whales in the open ocean. Whatever the case, the pole as I see it is never still or stationary. It is also not what James Harvey had in mind when he wrote the footnote. In an allusion to the custom of showing curious objects and particularizing their respective delicacies by the pointing of a rod. Nonetheless, I wonder if, for Harvey as it now does for me, the 1747 text accompanying this footnote, his popular and exuberantly italicized meditations among the tombs, called forth the bellman and that night sound of corpses shooting from dead carts into parish mass graves eighty years before. Such was, said a sexton of Defoe's acquaintance, a speaking sight. Looking intently down, two sisters have thrown a stone into the well. Here there is included an illustration. Here there is included another illustration. Here there is included another illustration. For a while now I've been haunted by a description from Francis Densmore's The American Indians and Their Music. In the Chippewa village at Lac du Flambeau, she writes, there stood in 1910 many poles, each near the house of an Indian. On the pole was an oblong frame covered with white cloth on which figures of birds or animals had been traced with colored paint. In many instances, the figures were almost effaced by the weather. These figures were the symbols of dream songs that had never been sung. Here there is included an illustration. Run, 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 run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. Run, 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 as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. Run, 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 as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. Here there is included an illustration. Last night, I dreamt of a lighthouse tumbling into the sea. Many are the things. Tar paper number three, Abby Donovan, March 2020. Skin vessel, hands of conscience. The history breaks more of lack of maintenance than because of the constant pounding against time. Locked, naked, in cookie boxes, different. Our home, that hell of imaginary words. Paradise of poets and movies. How long will this confinement last? 
the air out there enjoys our absence on the streets the plants shine there is music of empty trains this is the end of capitalism if you have a puzzle start it if you don't learn to play an instrument nobody is isolating you it is only you and your fear of time you wanted freedom you wanted time if you don't know what to do imagine frogs covered in butter think of stones and learn to pile them may the breath abandon your body today you breathe learn to cook once and for all man write letters apologize to your parents somewhere rivers of transparent water still flow soft curtains inflate with the afternoon breeze a fountain is still on children laugh soul of soap and dry towel you are the light of your family as long as there is life there is life have a coat of armor that protects our bodies from the outside world. It's our skin. We wash it with soap and water. Why? Well, there's a special reason. Look at your skin through a magnifying glass. It looks like it's full of tiny holes, doesn't it? These holes are called pores. To get off this mixture of oil, dirt, and germs, you have to use soap. Soap has a special way of cutting into the oil. It breaks the oil up into tiny drops and surrounds each drop. When you wash off the soap, the oil, dirt, and germs come off with it, and your skin is fresh and clean. And that's the special reason why people wash with soap. Billy's fast asleep. Oh, well, someday, Billy, you'll find out why people wash with soap. Myra Kalman is an author, illustrator, painter, and wry observer of life. Her artwork has appeared on the cover of The New Yorker, and her many books for children and adults include The Principles of Uncertainty, several collaborations with Daniel Handler, and most recently the wonderful illustrated edition of Gertrude Stein's The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Myra joined me on Zoom to talk about her perspective on these unusual times. You know, I live in the city, but I have a house upstate, and I and I went there with my son and his wife uh, to you know we decamped there March 13th. But uh, I this is such a, a phenomenally complicated time and something that of course none of us have experienced before. So I'm always trying to assess how how, how am I and what do I miss and what's amazing about this time. And what's such a what's a gift about this time, and what's a horror of this time? Mm. And I think that, um, and of course, it changes, you know, day by day and hour by hour. But I, um, 
I decided that I wouldn't miss anything. Hmm. And that I would, you know, if you can make a decision like that, that I have books and I have trees to look at and I have music to listen to and a sense of safety and a sense of gratitude. And, after, and with that, um, the feeling that, okay, it's okay. You know, no museums and no movies and no theaters and no all of it. It's okay, it's okay. And that this is a time for reflection and a time for just kind of reset, to take a big break. Is there is there a place that you think you will you will go once it's safe to be in public again? Is there some place in particular that you'd be especially interested in in re-embracing? Uh, you know, it's really amazing. I was supposed to go to England in the beginning of August to visit this amazing great house and garden. You know, one of the things that I really want to do is just spend a lot of time going from garden to garden in England, mostly England, but other countries too. And I was going to go to Chatsworth and be with the people who own Chatsworth, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire to be specific. And so I have to, I, you know, I've kind of been postponing every day. I'm thinking, well, I wonder if next week everything is gonna be perfectly fine. Well, everything is not perfectly fine next week, so I have to I have to cancel that. But that's kind of like the golden, the golden orb at the end of all of this, whenever it is in a year or two, or hopefully. Right. Then, and, and there, I was expecting you to say something like I don't know the, the Russian Tea Room or, no, or something. No. I realized it was Chatsworth. <laughs> you're right. Exactly. I go for the big you know, desires. Yeah, you're not kidding around. I'm not kidding around. I don't have any. I mean, that's what's interesting to me is that I don't miss sitting in restaurants and I mm. don't even miss sitting in cafes because you can sit on a bench uh, in New York which is what I'm doing now and watching people go by I've had enough museum experiences to la memories to last me you know, several lifetimes of course when they return I probably will avail myself of a museum or two but even on that level I'm thinking that's okay and you know my job is to be you know kind of solitary and and, and right. thinking and so it's not that different and the big break you know to say well uh, it wasn't everything too much and too fast so here the whole world you know comes to a stop and you go wow how do I take advantage of this moment and even though I did have obligations I use the word obligations like it's some kind of horrifying word, but I did have deadlines and obligations, which are wonderful to be engaged in. So it's nice to be pulled away from, you know, the cloud that I'm hovering in and actually engage with people and, and get things done on a, on a specific day. There's also the counterpoint of having no obligations and just being this kind of wandering fuzz that's, that's going about. So it's been an incredible gift. And also to be, to have time just to, well, just to have time and um not and to be in a house with my son and his wife i mean when would that happen i probably there and i say i don't know if she's screaming into her pillow at night but uh i'm assuming that we're i mean they're really spectacular uh, i am so full of gratitude for so much of it and the panic and the worry and the sorrow well that comes in at, anyway on a normal day right and maybe it's going to be heightened and we don't know what's going to happen but um yeah, I mean, there were, obviously none of us would have wished for this kind of narrowing of the aperture of our everyday life, of, of that volume and that hustle and all of the noise that, that seems to define contemporary lives. But despite all that, it, it, I think there is something to be said about the way in which it's created um, intimate worlds 
around us that we didn't anticipate. And obviously for some that's very frightening, uh, there's, that has to be acknowledged, but if, if we are privileged enough to have security and loved ones around us, I think it really has been kind of a remarkable moment. And also I, you know, I'm, I uh, turned 70 last November. So that is a kind of milestone on its own in a sense of like, okay, what are these, what's this next era? What's the meaning and uh, how, what's important? So this was really an added, if, you, if, you, if you're not thinking about what's important during this time, I don't know what you're thinking about, but um, so, I mean, of course, I'm looking at it from a different lens than uh, somebody who's young and, and expecting different things from their life. Right. Um, so maybe, you know, I'm, again, I, I feel fortunate that I've had a life, <laughs> and I'm sure there's more life to come for everybody. Uh, I just, you know, in what form is, well, it's interesting. You know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about there's a quality of your work that I've always really appreciated. And it's hard for me to quite put my finger on it. I would almost call it an existentialist optimism. There's this uh, embrace of the precariousness of life in your work and an enjoyment about the fragility. And there's that way in which sorrow and humor and catastrophe and beauty just they live side by side in so much of what you do. And you seem intensely attuned to those, those aspects of other lives, uh, whether they're historical or they're people you observe uh, on the street. Do you feel like that's a sensibility that's sustained you during this time or has it been put to the test in, in new ways? I've certainly understood that um, joy and sorrow or you know, humor and, and pathos not, not only go hand in hand, they inhabit the exact same space and you, you can't separate them. So the, the nature of looking at the world and saying, of course, saying on one level, this too shall pass, good comes from bad, as it has always been, as it ever was, you know, that, that it's just exactly the way the world works with a few added spins of impossibility but I certainly I mean it doesn't make me happy it doesn't make me happier but it makes me have a longer view uh, some sense of the, something else will happen and we will live it you know I think that maybe we, were, we felt that way in the late 60s that kind of sense that sense of Oh, this is really a forging of a new time. And then, of course, things fall apart and things go back to where they were and then they change and then they don't change. You know, but, um, you know, you do your work. That's, a good, that's always a good thing to hold on to. And, um, you know, make your bed. So have you been able to, to work during this time? Well, reluctantly. I... It's interesting. I have been, what I've been doing is a, a painting every day of the time so I could mark, I could say to somebody, look, I've actually done something in the last, you know, three or four months. So every day I've done a painting, whether it's uh, Natalia Ginsburg or uh, the bird building a nest. So I have a diary of my time. And, that, and, and in the desire to offer some amount, some pittance to help organizations that are uh, trying to have fair votes and get the vote out and flip the Senate and all that. 
Um, I'm producing, I'm self-publishing a little book about trees. So um, that's at the printer now, and I'm going to send that out. And and uh, one of the things that I've discovered so much, just generally looking at trees, is such an extraordinary experience, and then painting them. So I've been very, very excited and happy about painting trees. And then a, a, and then a few books that have just been finished. One a children's book about my grandchildren, one uh, book uh, with David Byrne uh, from his show American Utopia that I did the, the show curtain for. So the drawings became a book with some of his texts that my son designed. So there was another opportunity to have a family, you know, a family affair. And I now am embarking on a book about the library. And so, but it's, it's slow going. <laughs> I have to say it's very slow going. But it sounds like it's been a remarkably productive time, actually. Well, that's nice of you to say. Well, to, certainly to my ear, it seems like there's there's a lot that's going on. I'm fascinated by the the way in which you've been chronicling small things um, during this period. Do you think that you might ever put those together to document the experience of quarantine? I, I could see that maybe being part of something. You know, the nice thing is that I'm not thinking; I'm just doing it, and I, you know, I like it up on my wall. Like it's week by week, and I can just count my weeks. In a, you know, in a nice visual way. Yeah. And, uh, no idea. Maybe it's something. Maybe it's not. Is that you know? So so much of the the work that you do pays such careful attention, um, with almost Proustian degree of detailed attention to uh, to objects, um, to the ways that they define us, to the ways that they speak our histories, or or just provide for us moments of insight or pleasure or even um, a kind of melancholy, a necessary melancholy that allows reflection. I, I found myself wondering if there might be any kind of object that has emerged for you during this period of quarantine that seems to, to almost define this time or this experience. Is there something that you've related to in particular that, that feels like it belongs to, to, to this moment? Well, I, I'll go back. I'm trying to think of like actual objects, but the only, the first thing, and then probably I should once again go and it's going to be boring is to go to trees. Uh, sure. They represent, you know, they, there's such a representation for the human spirit of these incredible, these incredible beings. And also with that, we could say all, all nature actually in this time, if somebody has the, you know, the good fortune to, have any nature around them at all that sense of um fantastic solace it's a reminder just continue to do your life as best you can and um see what happens uh, i want to be uh sensitive to to your time i know i'm sure you have plenty to do and trees to paint and <laughs> I, have plenty not to, I have plenty not to do <laughs> plenty you, not know, to do. You, know the, you know the kafka quote which is, um, there's hope, but not for us. <laughs> yes. A reminder like that. And let's close with, there's hope, but not for us. No, we don't know. Well, we don't know, do we? Where it began, I can't begin to know it. But then I know it's growing strong. Summer. 
reaching out Don't touch me I won't touch you Sweet Caroline Good times never seem so good You have been listening to the Sound Images of the Electro Library podcast, a production of the Stonehill College Digital Lab. In this episode, we heard Sutopa Dasgupta read D.A. Powell, David Charlesworth read Don DeLillo, Richard Colton read Claris Lispector, Jared Green read from Franz Kafka, Professor Karen Tia told us about Chinese hermits, Professor Matthew Barushko read from John Keats, Abigail Donovan read from her work, Tar Paper. Carlos Jose Perez Samano read his poem, Evening at Home. And Myra Kalman spoke to Jared over Zoom. Special thanks to everyone who contributed. And to Professor James Baum for his Music for Handwashing interludes. And to Myra Kalman for her interview. Tune in for the second episode of this two-part series, The Electro Library, Quarantine Edition. <laughs>